Showcase Sundays today on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG-13, suggesting that all children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult. From the four corners of this world, there are more than 341 million people who speak English. This is the society of the ear, the society of the mind. Our voices are legion. Here we have the opportunity to spread stories through the theater of the mind all across the cyber byways and radial beacons. We are inclusive. We are eclectic. We are collective. We are the Sonic Society. Sonic Society 670 Shadows Fools. Good morning and welcome everyone to 2021 and the Sonic Society, the world's greatest and largest showcase of modern audio drama. And this week, our co-host is also our feature artist. Happy New Year, David. <laughs> Good morning and a happy new year, Jack. And indeed, everyone, let's hope 2021 provides a welcome respite from 2020. Mm. And this week, as Jack has teased features, some of the other shows I've had fun with, including Shadow at the door with two features, The Signalman and A Warning to the Curious from Mark Nixon, and Byron versus the Megashark by Miles Reed Lobato uh, from myself and Ellie Hirschman, who are part of the Cool Fool production group. So sit back, relax, enjoy the listening to our David in some great audio, because it all begins right here on the Sonic Society. Welcome to episode 4 of Shadows of the Door, the podcast. My name is Mark Nixon, and if this is your first time joining us, each episode David Alt and I feature a ghost story and then discuss the ideas and themes. Well, among many tangents. Today, we have something truly special for you. We again feature not only a classic tale, but arguably one of the greatest ghost stories of all time, if not the greatest. No doubt you'll be familiar with the writer, Mr. Charles Dickens, a man who loved ghosts and the supernatural as much as he loved social commentary. Yes, today we proudly present The Signalman. The story was originally published in 1866 and has enjoyed countless reprints since then. Whether you're familiar with this chilling tale already, or this is your first time, we hope you enjoy the story of hauntings and tragedies. So, gather around the fire, pour yourself some tea, and we'll begin. 
path by which I can come down and speak with you. I say, is there any path? Uh, ah, down there? Uh, all right. This is a rather lonesome post to occupy, is it not? Your signal box caught my attention when I looked down from up yonder. A visitor is a rarity, I should suppose, but not an unwelcome one, I hope. I so rarely get out of the city myself. I found myself with a newly awakened interest in everything out here. And the trains are marvellous to see, at least for a man who has lived as narrow a life as I. For you, they must be almost mundane. Oh, frightfully sorry, but is there something wrong with that red light by the tunnel mouth? You, you've hardly averted your eyes from it. it. It's part of your charge, is it not? Don't you know it is? <laughs> you look at me as if you had a dread of me. I was doubtful whether I'd seen you before. Where? There. Uh, by the red light? Yes. <laughs> My good fellow, what should I do there? However, be that as it may, I never was there. You may swear by it. I think I may. Yes, I'm sure I may. Splendid. The cold coming from the tunnel causes quite the chill, does it not? That it does, sir. It is a damp little spot. But my box is quite comfortable. Oh, yes. And have you much to do? Yes. That is to say, I have enough responsibility to bear. Exactness and watchfulness are required the most. Although there is a little manual work. I must change the signals, trim the lights, and turn the iron handles. But the hours can be long and lonely. As such, I read a great deal. I should be glad of a forced enclosure in which to read. On duty, do you always stay down here, or are you at times able to escape the shadows of the bridge? In fairer weather, I have, but I'm at all times liable to be called by the electric bell, and I find the anxiety stops me from venturing far. Perhaps, sir, you would care to join me in my box and warm yourself? I would be most grateful. the task for now. Where were we last, sir? 
Please, you must stop calling me sir. We are but two gentlemen. I would not refer to myself in that way. Well, perhaps you would allow the title of scholar? I hope I might say without offense that you have been well educated and perhaps above your station. That is not unusual among large bodies of men. I have heard it so in workhouses and in the police force, even the army. When young, I was a student of natural philosophy. I missed my opportunities, went down and never rose again. I have no complaint to offer. I've made my bed and I lie upon it. Far too late to make another. Please understand, sir, that I claim to be nothing but what you find me. Wait. Are you quite all right? What is it you see, man? There is no train. That's twice this evening you've interrupted yourself like that for seeming no reason. You do not hear it. Hear what? Your senses tell you nothing. My dear friend, there is nothing to sense. You are shaking. <sighs> yes, sir. I suppose I am all right. Yes, well, otherwise you almost make me think I've met with a contended man. I believe I used to be so. But I am troubled, sir. I am troubled. With what, exactly? It is very difficult to impart, sir. Very difficult to speak of. If ever you make me another visit, I will try to tell you. I expressly intend to make you another visit. When shall it be? I shall be on again at 10 tomorrow night, sir. Then I will come at 11. I'll show my white light, sir, till you have found the way up. When you have found it, don't call out. And when you are at the top, don't call out. Very well. And when you come down tomorrow night, don't call out. Let me ask you a parting question. What made you cry, hello, below there tonight? Heaven knows, I, I cried something to that effect. Not to that effect, sir. Those were the very words. I know them well. I suppose they were the words. I said them, no doubt, because I saw you below for no other reason. <laughs> what other reason could I possibly have? You had no feeling that they were conveyed to you in a supernatural way? No. Then I bid you good night. Follow my light and make your way safely. Call out. May I speak now? By all means, sir. Then here is my hand. It's good to see you again. And here is mine, to you as well. Come, inside by the fire. I've made up my mind. You shall not have to ask me of my troubles again. In truth, I took you for someone else yesterday evening. The person who troubles me. Who? Does he look like me? I don't know. I never saw the face. 
The left arm is always across the face. The right arm is waved violently. So, uh, like this. And it shouts, uh, it shouts... For God's sake, clear the way! Huh. One moonlit night, I was sitting here when I heard a voice cry, Hello, below there. I started up, I looked from the door and saw someone standing by the red light near the tunnel, waving just how I have shown you. The voice seemed hoarse with shouting and it cried, Look out, look out! Hello, below there, look out. So I took my lamp, turned it on red, and ran towards the figure, calling, What's wrong? What's happened? Where? But it just stood outside the blackness of the tunnel. I was so close, but the sleeve was across its eyes. I, I stretched out my hand to pull the sleeve away, and, and then it was gone. Into the tunnel? No. I ran on into the tunnel some 500 yards and saw nothing in the distance but the, the wet stains on the walls of the arch. I ran out faster than I'd run in, for I now had a mortal abhorrence of the place. And I looked all around the red light with my own red light. And I looked above the arch and below and ran back here. I telegraphed both ways. An alarm has been given. Is anything wrong? The answer came back both ways. All well. My good man, it, it must have been a trick of the eye. And as for the crying... Do but listen to the wind in this unnatural valley while we speak so low and to the wild harp it makes of the telegram wires. That is all very well, but I have worked here for so long that I am very familiar with the noises of the place. But what's more, within six hours after the appearance, uh, an accident happened on this line. Within ten hours, the dead and wounded were brought along through the tunnel right over the spot where the figure had stood. My word. Uh, but surely this is but coincidence. No, sir. It is not. That was just a year ago. Six or seven months passed and I had recovered from the surprise and the shock. When one morning, as the day was breaking, I was standing by the door and looked towards the red light and saw the spectre again. Did it cry out? No, it was silent. Did it wave its arm? No, it leaned against the shaft of the light with both hands before the face like it was in mourning. Did you go up to it? I came in and sat down, partly to collect my thoughts, partly because it had made me faint. When I returned to the door, daylight had broken and the ghost was gone. But nothing followed? Nothing came of this? That very day, as a train came out of the tunnel, I noticed at a carriage window a confusion of what looked like hands and heads and and something waved. I saw it just in time to signal the driver, stop. He put his brake on and the train eventually came to a stop further down the line. I ran after it and as I did I heard terrible screams and cries. A, a beautiful young lady had died instantaneously in one of the compartments. She was brought in here and laid on this very floor. I, I do not know what to say. 
Now, sir, mark this and judge how my mind is troubled. The Spectre came back a week ago. Ever since, it has been there now and again. At the light? The red light, yes. And what does it do? It covers its eyes with its sleeve again and waves the other arm. It shouts, for God's sake, clear the way. I have no peace or rest of it. It calls to me for many minutes together in an agonized manner. Below there, look out, look out. It, it somehow rings my little bell and... Ah, did it ring the bell yesterday evening when I was here? When you were distracted? Twice. Why, see how your imagination misleads you. My eyes were on the bell and my ears were open. I am a living man and I tell you that bell did not ring at all. Except, of course, when it was rung in the natural course of the other stations communicating with you. I have never made a mistake as to that yet, sir. I have never confused the spectre's ring with that of a man's. The ghost's ring is a strange vibration in the bell that derives from nothing else. I've not asserted that the bell stirs to the eyes, and I wonder why you failed to hear it, but I heard it. And did the spectre seem to be there when you looked out? It was there. Both times? Both times. Will you come to the door with me and look for it now? Oh, come now. Look, there is the red danger light. There is the dismal mouth of the tunnel. There are the trees and above us the stars. Now, do you see it? No, it is not there. Agreed. I know you do not fully understand, sir, but what troubles me so dreadfully is the question, what does the spectre mean? I'm sorry? What is its warning? Where is the danger? What is the danger? It is not to be doubted a third time after what has gone before. But surely this is a cruel haunting. What can I do? Oh. If I telegraph danger on either side of me or both, I can give no reason for it. I should get into trouble. They would think I was mad. Message. Danger. Take care. Answer. What danger? Where? Message. Don't know, but for God's sake, take care. What else could they do? When it first stood under the light, why not tell me where the accident was to happen? Why not tell me how it could be averted? When on its second coming, when it mourned, why not tell me instead she is going to die, let them keep her at home? If it came on those two occasions only to show me the warnings were true and to prepare me for a third, why not warn me plainly now? And I, Lord help me, a mere poor signalman on this solitary station. Why not go to somebody with credit to be believed and power to act? And <laughs> Whatever the reason, the duty has fallen to you. Whether I am sure of my own understanding of these confounded circumstances or not, it is good that you understand the duty before you. Look, the time is rather late. Shall I stay through the night? <laughs> no, 
Forgive me, sir. I, I will not hear of it. Are you quite sure? I do not like that red light, and I shall keep my eyes firmly on it as I ascend up the bank. I myself would not rest easy by it. I see no reason to conceal my dread, and I do not wish that solitary unease upon you. I insist, sir, no. There is nowhere for you to find comfort here. We cannot leave you in this state forever. Would you at least entertain the possibility of a malady? Allow me to take you to a doctor in the morning when your shift is but finished. Perhaps, sir. Return at nine, and I shall at least accompany you into town. Splendid. I shall make my way back now. Do not concern yourself with lighting the way again. See yourself to fire and a cup of tea, yes? Good night. Good night, sir. tea will do for now. And perhaps the doctor may... Oh, no. Danger, what's going to happen? Hello? Below there! Look out! For God's sake, clear the way! Hello? Uncover your face, man, and tell me. Tell me! Let me stop it! by the light. Wait. He is most certainly a man of flesh and bone, and he is not alone. What on earth is going on down there? I say, hello? What's happened? Uh, what, what are you men gathered around? What, what's the matter? Signalman killed this morning, sir. Not the man belonging to that box. Yes, sir. Not the man I know. Well, you'll recognise him if you knew him, for his face is quite composed. How did this happen? 
He was cut down by the engine, sir. No man in England knew his work better, but somehow he was not clear of the outer rail. It was just as day was breaking. He had his lamp in hand and his back to the tunnel facing the danger light. And the engine struck him down. This man was driving. He was just telling us how it happened. Tell the gentleman, Tom. Coming round the curve in the tunnel, sir. I saw him at the end. There was no time to check speed, and I, I knew him to be very careful. He, he didn't seem to take heed of the whistle, so I, I shut it off and called to him as loud as I could. Uh, what did you say? It was dreadful, sir. I never stopped calling to him, even as we were upon him. I put this arm across my eyes as not to see, and I, I waved to him with the other, but it was no use. I shouted, Hello, below there, look out. Look out, for God's sake, clear the way. And that was The Signalman by Charles Dickens. Shadows at the Door is an audio drama podcast designed to scare and delight you. While rarely explicit, it is nonetheless produced with an adult audience in mind. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 8. I'm your host, Mark Nixon. Now, it'll come as no surprise to you that I've read a lot of ghost stories. In fact, I couldn't possibly hazard a guess at how many, and if I'm feeling rather pretentious, I would dare to call myself a connoisseur. Now, at this point, you'd be wondering, why am I showing off? Because I'd like you to consider the gravity of the following statement. Today's ghost story is one of the best I've ever read. The story has a wonderful title, A Warning to the Curious, and was written by none other than M.R. James. Come on, this is Shadows at the Door. Of course it was going to be him. This story was written after World War I. James didn't fight because he was the provost of King's College in Cambridge. The university provided a stream of men for the war, many of whom James knew personally, and sadly, many of these men didn't return. Not only this, but the fields of Cambridge were offered as a field hospital for wounded soldiers. James would wander the hospital and be exposed to the horrors of war second-hand as he saw the injuries of the men and the terror in their eyes. I mention this because sadness is woven into the very fabric of this story, and the context in which it was written will no doubt enhance your experience. But it's not all doom and gloom today. Join David and I after the story for a discussion, and you can even hear a snippet of the time I spoke with the ultimate MR James fan, Mark Gatiss. But for now, gather around the fire, pour yourself some tea, and we'll begin.
Are you sure I can't get you a cup of tea? No? Very well. It's remarkable how uncomfortable an Englishman can be when his company declines tea. Well, I shall enjoy mine all the same. Earl Grey, you know, marvellous stuff. You see, that, that's, that's bergamot you can smell. A little cornflower and uh, <laughs> a flutter of lemon. Oh, lovely. <laughs> the thing is, you must never, never have it with milk. It destroys it completely. Look, are you sure you don't want to... Sorry, this uh, really is a force of habit. But, yes, um... I promised you the story, didn't I? Um, let's see. Uh, well, cast your mind to the East Coast. Specifically, the place I ask you to consider is the town Sebra. It's not very different now from what I remember it to have been when I was a child. <laughs> Marshes intersected by embankments to the south, uh, recalling the early chapters of Great Expectations. <laughs> Um, then uh, flat fields to the north, uh, merging into woodland. And, of course, a, a long seafront by the town with a, a spacious, spacious church behind it. Yes. <laughs> I remember the bells of the church very well. The railway ran down to its little terminus farther along from here, just near an old windmill. And, and I know I encumber you with such details. Uh, the truth is, it's the kind of place that causes these details to spill forth when spoken about. In fact, um, just indulge a little longer, if you would be so kind. <laughs> so, um, walk away from the sea and the town, past the station and... Turn up the road on the right. It's a sandy road, parallel with the railway, and if you follow it, it climbs to somewhat higher ground. And on the left, going northward, is an area of uncultivated land, while on your right, toward the sea, is a belt of old fir trees, wind-beaten, thick at the top, with that slope all seaside trees have. Uh, seen from the skyline from the train, you would tell in an instant, if you did not already know it, that you were approaching a, a windy coast. Well, on top of that little hill, a line of firs strikes out and runs towards the sea. There is a ridge that goes that way, uh, and the ridge ends in a rather well-defined mound, commanding the level fields of rough grass, and a little knot of fir trees crowns it. And here you may sit on a hot spring day, very well content to look at blue sea and white windmills, red cottaged bright green grass, church tower and distant martello tower on the south. <sighs> as I said, I knew Zebra as a child, but a gap of a good many years separates my early knowledge from that which is more recent. Still, it keeps its place in my affections. Um, well, that is to say, it it, it used to. Um, but, of course, this is why you are here. I used to go to Zebra quite regularly for golf. I, I went with... Um, 
well, back then we would have been called friends. Yes. Uh, there was a particular hotel that we always stayed in, and we always chose the same two rooms. They had an interior door between them, so you could rent two rooms but walk freely between them without entering the hall. Uh, there was also a, a sitting room downstairs we rather enjoyed and would spend many a happy evening there. Since he died, I haven't cared to go back, and we, we never did anyhow after the particular thing that happened uh, yeah, that happened on our, our, our last visit. It was uh, a decade or so ago now, early spring, and by some chance we found ourselves almost the only people in the hotel. So the ordinary public rooms were practically empty, and we were the more surprised when, after dinner, the sitting room door opened and uh, a young woman popped her head in. She was a, a rather rabbity, anemic subject, light hair and light eyes, but not, not unpleasing. Uh, she was dressed smartly in tweed and asked rather politely if the room was private. Uh, naturally, we did not growl, and I... Uh, um, was it Henry? Uh, it, it doesn't matter. One of us invited her to take a seat. Uh, she was ever so thankful and, in fact, seemed uh, quite relieved. It was unusual, more then than it is now, to find a, a woman travelling solo, never mind one as young as her. She was very much one of those feminist types with an air of good education behind her. Uh, stranger still was the fact she seemed eager for company. She seemed a reasonably kind person, so we urged her to make herself at home. Soon, with the standard pleasantries out of the way, it became clear to me that after a few minutes this visitor of ours was in a rather a nervous state, and as this became more clear, I put away my book and gave her my full attention. How did she start again? Um, oh, yes, um... You'll think it very odd of me, but the fact, but the fact is, is, I've, is I've had something, something of a shock. shock. Perhaps a stiff drink is the ticket? Well, that's your solution to everything. <laughs> Shush. Well, joking aside, we have plenty to spare if you'd care to join us. <gasps> uh, no, thank you. We're fine. Aren't we, James? Uh, oh, yes, fine. Fine. Mm -hmm. uh, do you need anything from the staff? No, thank you. Uh, yes, all, all fine here. Thank you. Are you quite all right? Yes, I... Calm yourself. Um, I'm Paxton, by the way. Karina Paxton. Oh, uh, pleased to meet you, Paxton. I'm James King, and this is Henry Long. A pleasure. Oh, yes. I saw your names on the check-in list. Uh, yes, of course. So could I ask you for a word of advice? By all means. Of course. Thank you. But first, some context. More than a week ago, I cycled over to Froston to see the church. I studied architecture, and it's got one of those pretty porches with niches and shields. I took a photograph of it, and then an old man who was tending to the grounds came and asked if I'd like to see inside. Of course, I jumped at the chance. There wasn't much inside, but I told him it was nice enough and very clean, but nothing eclipsed the port. So, on that topic, he asked if I knew the meaning of the coat of arms. Would this be the three crowns? The very same. I wasn't familiar, but the old man told me it was the old arms of the Kingdom of East Anglia. 
He pressed if I knew the meaning, and when I admitted I didn't, he... Well, he took the mick a little, if I'm honest. But he did let me know they represented the three holy crowns buried by the coast to keep the Germans from landing over the years. We were then joined by the rector, and the old man recruited him immediately to confirm his story of the crown. <laughs> I know I'm rambling here. Oh, oh, no, 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 by all means. Are you sure? Uh, please, uh, continue. OK, so... We spoke a little while. Well, they spoke at me, and the rector initially seemed reluctant to go into much detail, yet the old man pressed on. By this point, I was curious enough to actually encourage it myself, if only to see why the old man was so excited. Eventually, the rector filled me in on the local legend of the Three Crowns. Hmm. Are you familiar? Uh, No, no. Well, this was his point. Nobody seemed to know it anymore. Me neither. The old story said that these three crowns were buried in different places near the coast to keep off the Danes or the French or the Germans. They said that one of the three was dug up a long time ago and another disappeared by the encroaching sea so that there was only one left still doing its work, keeping off invaders. They said that one of the three was dug up a long time ago and another was disappeared by the encroaching sea so that there was only one left still doing its work, keeping off invaders. (laughs) And, well, I looked into it. Oh, yes? Yeah. In 1687, a crown was dug up at Rendlesham on the coast, and I do believe this is one of the three supposedly holy crowns. Then on the south coast, there was a Saxon royal palace which is now under the sea. So there, perhaps, was the second crown. And up beyond these two, they said... Lay the third. Did they say where it is? Sort of. It all came to light with the mention of the name of William Ager. And who might that be? Well, these Agers are a very old name in these parts, I was told. Apparently they didn't seem to be people of quality or big landowners. No, instead their family seems to be the guardians of the last crown. Hmm. I see. The first one known was Nathaniel Ager, born and raised here and was said to have camped out at the location of the crown during the whole of the War of 1870. William, his son, did the same, it seems, during the South African War. And young William, his son, who only died fairly recently, took lodging at the cottage nearest the spot. This seemed to hasten his end, for he was consumptive, apparently. The man just... Wasted away. This is by exposure and night watching, you understand. And he seemed to be the last. So the last of the Holy Crowns no longer had a guardian. You can imagine how interested I was in all this. Well, naturally. And as I left, the only thing I could think of was how to hit upon the spot where the crown was supposed to be. Only now I wish I'd left it alone. Oh? It was fate, perhaps. As I circled back past the churchyard, my eye caught a fairly new gravestone, and on it was the name William Ager, who had indeed died quite recently. I travelled into town and asked around about the man. A little judicious questioning in the right place, and I could perhaps find the cottage. And of course, by then, I was determined, after all, find the cottage. Find the crown. Precisely. Uh And yes, fate would strike again when I found myself in the bookshop. They had some old books by Eger that had found their way to them after his death, and I found... this. 
Ager's Prayer Book. Nathaniel Ager is my name, and England is my nation. Seaborough is my dwelling place, and Christ is my salvation. When I am dead and in my grave, and all my bones are rotten, I hope the Lord will think on me when I am quite forgotten. This was dated 1754, and there were many more entries of Ager's, Nathaniel, Frederick, William and so on, ending with our William just last year. You see, anybody would call it the greatest bit of luck. I mean, I did. But I don't now. And of course, I asked the shopkeeper about the cottage, and of course, she knew just where the cottage was. And so, of course, off I went. I'm going to assume you found the place. Of course I did. At this point, I'm convinced the very stars would have aligned to guide me there. All I had to do was dig for the thing. Now I know something about digging in these barrows. I've opened many of them in the down country. But that was in broad daylight and with men to help. I had to prospect very carefully here before I put a spade in. Still, the soil was very light and easy, and there was already a rabbit hole that might be developed into a sort of tunnel. I spent all night out there. I made my tunnel, supported it and filled it once I was done. But the main thing is... I got the crown. Good Lord, really? Oh, that's incredible. No man alive has even seen a Saxon crown. Why, this is fantastic. The worst of it is, I don't know how to put it back. <laughs> put it back? My dear lady, you've made one of the most exciting finds ever heard of in this country. Indeed. What's the difficulty? Of course it ought to go to a museum, but if you're worried about the owner of the land and treasure trove and all that, we can... I can certainly help you through that. No one's going to make a fuss about technicalities in a case of this kind. I don't understand. No. I don't know how to put it back. You'll forgive me, I hope, if I seem impertinent. But are you quite sure you've got it? Well, yes, I was going to ask the same thing. I hadn't dared, unlike my bold partner here. Oh, there's no doubt about that. I have it here, in my room, locked up in my bag. You can come and look at it if you like. I won't... I won't bring it downstairs. <laughs> well, all, all right then. We were not likely to let the chance slip. We went with her. Her room was only a few doors off from ours. The staff were collecting shoes in the passage, or so we thought. Afterwards, we were... <laughs> we were not sure. Paxton was in a worse state of shivers than before and went hurriedly into the room and beckoned us after her. She turned on the light and shut the door carefully. Then she unlocked her kit bag and produced a bundle of clean pocket handkerchiefs in which something was wrapped. She laid it on the bed and undid it. Uh, I can now say I have seen an actual Anglo-Saxon crown. It was of silver, as the Rendlesham one is always said to have been, and it was set with some gems, mostly antique intaglios and cameos, and was of rather plain, although almost rough workmanship. In fact, it was like those you see on the coins and in the manuscripts. I found no reason to think it was later than the ninth century. I was intensely interested, of course, and I wanted to turn it over in my hands, but 
Paxton prevented me. She ordered me not to touch it, and with a sigh that was, I declare to you, dreadful to hear, she took it up and turned it about so that we could see every part of it. Once asked if we had seen enough, we nodded. She then wrapped it up and locked it in her bag and stood looking at us dumbly. Long offered that she come back downstairs and tell us what the trouble was, but strangely enough she asked us to go first and see if the coast was clear. We were almost amused by the request. We had not been suspicious in any way, and the hotel, as I said, was practically empty. However, Long and I were beginning to have inklings of, um... <laughs> well, I, I don't know what it was, and anyhow, nerves are infectious. <laughs> so we did go, first peering out as we opened the door, and fancying that a shadow, or, or more than a shadow, but it made no sound passed from before us to one side as we came out into the passage. <laughs> However, at the time we didn't recognise the importance of what we had just seen. No, instead we whispered to Paxton that it was all right. Whispering seemed the proper tone. <laughs> and we went with her between us back to the sitting room. I was preparing, when we got there, to be ecstatic about the unique interest of what we had seen, to forget the shadow in the hallway, but... But, uh, when I looked at Paxton, I saw that would be terribly out of place, and I left it to her to begin. What is to be done? Well, why not find out who the owner of the land oh, is? no! Bit... No! No. In fact, you've been very kind. But don't you see? It has to go back. And I don't go at night again, and the daytime is impossible. And, well, the truth is, I've never been alone since I first touched it. What? Oh, look, my dear... No, shush. Ah. I think I do see, perhaps... Wouldn't it be a relief to tell us more clearly what the situation is? Perhaps. Perhaps not. Okay. But pull your chairs forward. I will not say it loudly. It began when I was first prospecting. There was always somebody there. A man, standing by one of the fir trees... This was in daylight, you know. He was never in front of me. I always saw him with the tail of my eye on the left or the right. And he was never there when I looked straight for him. I would lie down for quite a long time and take careful observations and make sure there was no one. And then when I got up to dig again, there he was. And from what I could tell, he was weak. Gaunt. But I didn't dare face up to him. And when I was making the tunnel, of course he was worse. And had I not been so keen on the crown that I should have dropped everything and ran for it. It was like somebody was scraping at my back all the time. I thought for the longest time it was only soil dropping on me, but as I got nearer the crown it was unmistakable. And when I actually laid it bare and got my fingers on the crown and pulled it out, there came... There came a sort of cry behind me. Christ! 
I can't describe to you both how desolate it was. And horribly threatening, too. It spoilt all pleasure in my discovery immediately. And if I hadn't been the wretched fool that I am, well, I should have put the thing back and left it. But I didn't, did I? The rest of the time was just awful. I had hours to get through before I could decently come back to the hotel. First I spent time filling up my tunnel and covering my tracks, and all the while he was there trying to thwart me. Sometimes you know you see him, and sometimes you don't. It's just as he pleases, I think. I think he's there, but he has some power over your eyes. Well, I wasn't off the spot very long before sunrise, and then I had to get back to the train for Zebra. And though it was coming to daylight, I, I don't know if that made it much better. There were always hedges or gorse bushes or park fences along the road. Always cover is what I mean. And I was never easy for a second. And then when I began to come across people going to work, they always looked behind me very strangely. It might have been that they were surprised at seeing anyone so early, but... I didn't think that then, and I do not think that now. They... They didn't look exactly at me. And the porter at the train was like that too. The guard held open the door after I got on the carriage, just as he would if there was somebody else coming, you see. And this crown! Even if I do put it back, he won't forgive me. I can tell that. <sighs> and I was so happy a fortnight ago. <laughs> well, you can imagine how useful we were in front of a crying woman. Eventually, Long spattered me to help, and all I could do was uh, approach her and pat her thrice on the back. Uh, strangely, such a gesture didn't garner much response. But in truth, we didn't know what to say. Neither of us were any good at this sort of thing. But we felt we must come to her rescue somehow, and, and so it seemed the only thing we could do was to offer to help put the crown back, seeing as she was so set on it. And though at this point we didn't know how exactly to take the story, it, it did seem the right thing to do. If these horrid consequences had come on this poor woman, might there not really be something in the original idea of the crown having some curious power bound up with it to guard the coast? At least that was my feeling, and I dare say it was Long's too. And I suspect you're feeling the same right about now. Yes? Yes. It may come as no surprise to you to learn that this suggestion was very welcome to Paxton. The question was, when could we do it? It was nearing half past ten. Could we contrive to make a late walk that very night? We looked out of the window. There was a brilliant full moon, the Paschal Moon. It was as clear a night as one could hope for. Paxton had spoken of fate, and... It seemed yet again the stars were aligning to accommodate her, knowing what happened next, and thinking back now, it is hard not to assign importance to such things. <laughs> or perhaps man looks for design in an indifferent and random universe. 
I remain uncertain of such things. Long undertook to retrieve all the boots. Paxton brought her coat but didn't put it on. Instead, she wrapped it around the crown and carried it under her arm. The staff of the hotel watched us as we headed for the seafront in the dead of night. We must have seemed so strange to them. And so we were off on this strange brand before we had time to think how very much out of the way it was. I have told you this part quite shortly on purpose, for it really does represent the haste with which we settled our plan and took action. Well, there was nobody about. Nobody at all. The zebra out of the season is a... Uh, <laughs> it's a very quiet place. I confess to having thought that there might be someone out there who might be conscious of our business, but if it was so, they were also conscious that one who was on their side, so to say, had us under surveillance, and we saw no sign of them. But under observation we felt we were, as I have never felt it at another time. Especially was it so when we passed out of the churchyard into a narrow path with close high hedges, through which we hurried and so got out into open fields. Then along hedges, though I would sooner have been in the open, where I could see if anyone was visible behind me over a gate or two, and then a swerve to the left, taking us up on the ridge which ended in that mound. As we neared it, Henry felt, and I felt too, that there were what I can only call dim presences waiting for us, as well as a far more actual one attending us. Of uh, Paxton's agitation all this time I can give you no adequate picture. She breathed like a hunted beast, and we could not either of us look at her face. How she would manage when we got to the very place we had not trouble to think. She had seemed so sure that that would not be difficult. Nor was it. I never saw anything like the dash with which she flung herself at a particular spot in the side of the mound and tore at it, so that in a very few minutes the greater part of her body was out of sight. We stood holding the coat and that bundle of handkerchiefs and looking very fearfully, I must admit, about us. There was nothing to be seen. A line of dark firs behind us made one skyline. Uh, more trees and the church tower half a mile off on the right. Cottages and a windmill on the horizon on the left. Calm sea, dead in front faint barking of a dog at a cottage on a gleaming dike between us and it, full moon making that path we know across the sea, the eternal whisper of the scotch firs just above us and of the sea in front. Yet, in all this quiet, an acute, an acrid, consciousness of a restrained hostility very near us, like a dog on a leash that might be let go at any moment. Here we are.
over to me. Okay, let me just unravel the coat. Careful, don't touch it. Steady now, old boy. Here we are. The moonlight just fell on it as she snatched it. We had not ourselves touched that bit of metal, and I have thought since that it was just as well. In another moment, Paxton was out of the hole again and busy shoveling back the soil with hands that were already bleeding. She would have none of our help, though, and it was much the longest part of the job to get the place to look undisturbed. <laughs> Yet I don't know how, but she made a wonderful success of it. At last she was satisfied, and we turned back. Monsieur, let's go. Right you are. I say, Paxton, you've left your coat there. See? Oh, yes, that won't do. No, that isn't my coat. Well, of course it is. I mean, look... It's here in my hands. Huh? What? Where's it gone? Hmm. Well... We got out onto the road and came rapidly back that way. It was well before twelve when we got in, trying to put a good face on it and saying, well, Long and I, oh, what a lovely night it was for a walk. <laughs> the staff were on the lookout for us, and we made remarks like that for their edification as we entered the hotel. The fellow gave another look up and down the seafront before he locked the front door and said, Um... <laughs> You didn't meet many people about, I suppose, sir? Uh, no, indeed, not a soul, I said, at which I remember Paxton looked oddly at me. Only I thought I see someone turn quickly up the station road after you, gentlemen, he said. Still, you was three together. I don't suppose you meant mischief. Uh, I didn't know what to say. Long merely said good night, and we went off upstairs to our room, uh, promising to turn out all lights and to go to bed in a few minutes. Well, uh, that's the crown back safe. Yes, it's back. And yes, uh, you've done better not to have ever touched it, but no real harm has been done. And we shall never give this away to anyone who would be so mad as to go near it, isn't that right, Henry? Most definitely. Besides, don't you feel better yourself? I don't mind confessing that on the way there, well, uh, I was very much inclined to take your view about, um, well, about being followed. Uh, but coming back, it, it wasn't the same thing, was it? Hmm. You've absolutely nothing to trouble yourself about. But I'm not forgiven. I've got to pay for that miserable sacrilege still. I know what you're going to say. The church might help. Yes. But it's the body that has to suffer. It's true I'm not feeling that he's waiting outside for me just now, but... Good night, gentlemen. Thank you for coming with me. Will you join us tomorrow? Oh, yes, please do. Uh, do you golf? I have in the past. 
But I'm not sure I should care for it tomorrow. Get plenty of rest and join us in the sitting room tomorrow. We insist. Uh, we could go for a walk or, or you could join us for cards. That would be nice. A day like that would be nice. Well, anyway, good night. You'll wonder why we didn't insist on accompanying her to her room or seeing her safe into the care of brothers or someone. The fact was, she had nobody. She had had a flat in the next town, but lately had made up her mind to settle for a time in Sweden, and she had dismantled her flat and shipped off her belongings and was whiling away a fortnight or three weeks before making a start. Anyhow, we didn't see what we could do better than sleep on it, or or not sleep very much, as was my case, and see what we felt like tomorrow morning. We felt very different, Long and I, on as beautiful an April morning as you could desire, and Paxton also looked very different when we saw her at breakfast. The first approach to a decent night I seem ever to have had, was what she said. But she was going to do as we had settled. Stay in probably all the morning and come out with us later. We went to the links, we met some other men and played golf with them in the morning and had lunch there rather early so as not to be late back. All the same, the snare of death overtook. Whether it could have been prevented, I don't know. I think she would have been got at somehow, do what we might. Nonetheless, I have played these events countless times in my mind. We went straight up to the living room. Paxton was there reading quite peaceably. Long asked if she would join us in around half an hour, and she agreed. We informed her we were off to have baths and would be back in that time. I had my bath first and went and lay down on my bed and slept for about ten minutes. We came out of our rooms, room together, and went to the sitting room. Paxton wasn't there, only her book. Nor was she in her room, nor in the downstairs rooms. We shouted for her. A servant came out and said, "'Why, I thought you gentlemen was gone out already, and so did the lady.' She heard you were calling from the path there and run out in the hurry, and I looked out of the coffee room window, but I didn't see you. However, she ran off down the beach that way. Without a word, we ran that way too. It was the opposite direction to that of last night's expedition. It wasn't quite four o'clock, and the day was fair, though not so fair as it had been, so that was really no reason, you'd say, for anxiety. With people about, surely a, a woman couldn't come to much harm. But something in our look as we ran out must have struck the servant, for he came out on the steps and pointed and said, Yes, that's the way she went. We ran on as far as the top of the shingle bank and there pulled up. Uh, there was a choice of ways, past the houses on the seafront or along the sand at the bottom of the beach, which, the tide being now out, was fairly broad. Or, of course, we might keep along the shingle between those two tracks and have some view of both of them, uh, only that was heavy going. We chose the sand, for that was the loneliest, and someone might come to harm there without being seen from the public path. <laughs> Uh, 
James! There she is! Where? Up ahead! Oh, there, there's someone. Paxton! 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 She mustn't hear us. Oh, or it's not her. Blast it, it must be! What's she doing? I can't see for this bloody mist. It's come out of nowhere. I think... I think she's running after someone. She's waving her arms, I think. Paxton! Paxton! Hang on, uh, uh, these tracks. Someone's barefoot, it looks like. Barefoot? They're practically like bone. What? Uh, James! And these tracks joining them, are they... Uh, yes, they look like, like women's shoe prints. It must be her. Uh, why is she running after them? What are you saying, James? I don't like this, Henry. I don't like this at all. Paxton! 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 The notion of Paxton running after anything like this and supposing it to be the friend she was looking for was very dreadful to us. You can guess what we fancied, how the thing she was following might stop suddenly and turn round on her and what sort of face it would show, half seen at first in the mist, which all the while was getting thicker and thicker. And as I ran on, wondering how the poor wretch could have been lured into mistaking that other thing for us, I remembered her saying, He has some power over your eyes. And then I wondered what the end would be, for I had no hope now that the end could be averted, and, well, there is no need to tell all the dismal and horrid thoughts that flitted through my head as we ran on into the mist. It was uncanny, too, that the sun should still be bright in the sky and we could see nothing. We could only tell that we were now past the houses and had reached that gap there is between them and the old Martello Tower. When you are past the tower, you know, there is nothing but shingle for a long way, not a house, not a human creature, just that spit of land, or rather shingle, with the river on your right and the sea on your left. But... Just before that, just by the Martello Tower, you remember there is the old battery close to the sea. I believe there are only a few blocks of concrete left now. The rest has all been washed away, but at this time there was a lot more, though the place was a ruin. Well, when we got there, we clambered to the top as quick as we could to take breath and look over the shingle in front if by chance the mist would let us see anything. But a moment's rest we must have. We had run a mile, at least. Nothing whatever was visible ahead of us, and we were just turning by common consent to get down and run hopelessly on when we heard uh, what I can only call a laugh. And if you can understand what I mean by a breathless, a, a lungless laugh, you have it. But I don't suppose you can... It came from below and swerved away into the mist. Oh, the mist! <laughs> Good Lord. Oh, God. Jesus Christ. We bent over the wall. Paxton was there at the bottom. You don't need to be told that she was dead. 
Her tracks showed that she had run along the side of the battery, had turned sharp round the corner of it, and, smalled out of it, must have dashed straight into the open arms of someone who was waiting there. Her mouth was full of sand and stones, and her teeth and jaws were broken to bits. I, I only glanced once at her face. At the same moment, just as we were scrambling down from the battery to get to the body, we heard a shout and saw a man running down the bank of the Martello Tower. He was the caretaker stationed there, and his keen old eyes had managed to descry through the mist that something was wrong. He had seen Paxton fall. Had he, we asked, caught sight of anybody attacking our friend? He could not be sure. We sent him off for help and stayed by the poor dead woman till they came with the stretcher. It was then that we traced out how he had come on the narrow fringe of sand under the battery wall. The rest was shingle, and it was hopelessly impossible to tell whither the other had gone. What were we to say at the inquest? It was a duty we felt not to give up there and then, the secret of the crown to be published in every paper. I don't know how much you would have told, but what we did agree upon was this, to say that we had only made acquaintance with Paxton the day before, and that she had told us she was under some apprehension of danger at the hands of a man called William Ager. Also that we had seen some other tracks besides Paxton's when we followed her along the beach. But of course, by that time, well, everything was gone from the sands. No one had any knowledge, fortunately, of any William Ager living in the district. The evidence of the man at the Martello Tower freed us from all suspicion. All that could be done was to return a verdict of willful murder by some person or persons unknown. Paxton was so totally without connections that all the inquiries that were subsequently made ended in a no thoroughfare. But of course you know this, the, the gaps in the official story and the local gossip mill are what brought you to me after all. And I have never been at Zebra or even near it since. I hope you tread carefully if you do decide to go. After all, I don't think there'll be much for you to see all these years later. Perhaps it's time for another cup. But I do hope this has all been helpful. I'm afraid you don't have much evidence other than my words and the records you've already seen. Long is dead, of course, and it did happen so many years ago. But nonetheless, the best of luck in your research. It has been a pleasure to meet you, Professor Troughton.
was a warning to the curious written by Montague Rhodes James. Specializing in moderately high quality audio entertainment and potentially entertaining content. We are Cool Fool Productions. Mother, please, not while I'm working. In 2009, Cool Fool Productions released a previously unaired and unwanted episode of The Byron Chronicles, penned by the epic Brian C. Now, Cool Fool is proud to present another stunning lost episode in The Byron Chronicles, written by legendary author Miles Reed. Cool Fool Productions presents Byron Meets the Mega Shark. as Alistair, and to a select few various Portland government offices as a known unpayer of taxes. My affairs are many and on occasion convoluted. Sometimes people try to kill me, but I'm Byron. I don't die easily. But as much as I try and avoid it, sometimes my life is thrown into affairs so pointless and petty that I find myself having to get involved. Not because the fate of the world rests upon it, but because, quite honestly, I need a laugh. That was why I was here at the Portland docks late at night. Because petty affairs were spiralling out of control, and as amusing as it may be to let these things go on and unchecked, I hadn't been having a good week. Even immortals have off days. <clears throat> I, Byron, summon you. Appear before me, oh... Great and powerful mega mega shark. <clears throat> Appear before me, the great and dreaded pale man of Portland, destroyer of cities, killer of vampiric brides. You can stop now, you know. Okay. I mean, if you're not going to put any real effort into it, then there's no point. We might as well not bother with the mystic incantations if you're going to say it with all the dramatic power of reading off somebody's laundry list. I'm sorry, but Mega Shark, you can't make that sound scary or terrifying the same with blood monkeys, mega snakes, or a giant-sized man thing. It sounds ludicrous. What do you want from me, Byron? What makes you so mega? Huh? Mega usually means something large or great. You're slightly bigger than your average shark, this is true, but not really mega. I am the mega shark! Greatest and the most terrifying of all sharks! Prove it. I can kill you effortlessly. My bite is sharp and terrible. Find me a shark that doesn't describe. I can still kill you effortlessly. If I got in the water. Yes. That's hardly a terrible destructive power now, is it? 
more suited to your natural environment. Now, a lion is a dangerous creature in its own environment, but you don't see overly large lions calling themselves mega lions and claiming to be some sort of terrifying avatar of death and destruction. I could bite your head clear off! Well, come and get me. Where, where are you going? I'm going home to brood. This is stupid. You make Jabberjaw look scary. Oh, oh, no, you don't. You do not go there. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I dare insult the great and powerful Mega Shark? You better come and kill me. All you have to do is make your way to the end of the pier on your flippers, and you can kill me. Of the awesome power of the Mega Shark. <laughs> I'm almost impressed. Now, Byron, prepare to be devoured by the almighty Mega Shark. Can you breathe out of water? Pardon? Can you breathe out of water? Most sharks can't. But since you're a Mega Shark, you might be different. <laughs> Guess not. Hello? Anything? No, that was disappointing. At least Mr. Hirschman's fish stand's going to get some free shark meat to sell tomorrow. I wonder if you can get good eating off a mega shark. <sighs> I'm Byron, pale immortal, and sometimes I wish I'd just stayed in bed. <laughs> mega shark. And that's this week's show. Please check the show notes for links for both shows this week at sonicsociety.org. Please be sure to contact us on all the various social media zines, including Twitter at Sonic Society and at David Alt, Facebook through the Sonic Society group and Audio Drama Radio Drama Lovers, and of course look for us as a proud member of the Mutual Audio Network at mutualaudionetwork.com. Take care of yourselves out there, folks, and we'll see you next week. As always, I'm Jack Ward. And I'm David Alt. Have a wonderful day, everyone. Bye now.
Sonic Society is written and produced weekly by Jack J. Ward and David Alt, with original music by Sharon B. at SharonB.com. All features, interviews, and audio drama shorts are owned completely by their originators and provided to the Sonic Society by Creative Commons Licensing. The Society itself originates from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. Thanks for listening. This has been an Electric Vicuna production. Good morning and joyo, joyo. <laughs> Good morning and joyal Noel Noel joyo. Oh God, I can't say anything. <laughs> and I'm David Alt. Hap, hap, blah, 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 blah. You can listen to classical and brand new audio dramas through the Mutual Audio Network. Subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or iHeartRadio today. There's eight different podcasts, one for each day of the week and genre, and the Mutual Audio Network broadcast feed so you don't miss a day of your favorite shows. Subscribe to Mutual Audio tonight. Good night.